Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Dangerous Thoughts on Unsafe, spa unsafe Space. I can't even pronounce the name of the channel. Uh, I'm Carter. I hope you guys had a great holiday break. I did. Didn't do much work. Didn't pay attention to the world crumbling around us. So that was nice. Um, as a reminder, this show, Dangerous Thoughts, is a show that we do every Wednesday. It's, uh, you know, we try and have deeper discussions on this show about philosophy for living, as in, uh, as you're, you know, as a human here in reality, not in a ivory tower. Um, in other words, we try and articulate, reinforce, and extend the rational life affirming ideas responsible for the success of Western civilization, otherwise known as enlightenment or many of the enlightenment ideas. Welcome to everyone in chat. Um, I assume you're all subscribed if you're watching. If you're not, go correct that lapse in judgment right now. Dum, dum, dum. Um, and uh, in addition, though, please help the community grow. Uh, you can help grow this community of, you know, it's, it's our community together of liberty-minded people that are armed with the intellectual ammunition uh, needed to combat the madness that's rotting Western civilization from within. So if you want to expand your community, share this stuff. Um, you can share it on social media, email, text, semaphore flags, which my daughter is now learning. She's learned Morse code. Now she's into semaphore flags. Whatever works for you. Beverly probably, she probably has carrier pigeons. I don't know. Um, also, I want to uh, remind you, you can support the show financially by going to unsafespace.com. Sorry, I'm listening to my baby cry in the background, so I'm distracted. Um, you can support us financially by listening or by uh, going to unsafespace.com, clicking the support us button. Um, depending on your level of support, you can get some cool stuff. You can get a grenade mug, which is probably on the shelf behind me right there, sort of. Uh, you can get your name in the credits. Um, all the financial supporters, no matter what your level, get access to our Discord server where you can have conversations with like-minded individuals. We have some exclusive content there, but we're really in 2022. We're trying to figure out what to do, what kind of content we can add, how can, we can make that better for community members. So stay tuned um, for that. Okay. What else do I need to say before I start the show? Oh. If you missed the last episode with Dr. Stephen Hicks, uh, which was prior to the holidays, I highly recommend you go watch it. I loved it. He is a badass, and I really liked it. Philosophical badass. Uh, it was really good. All right. Today's show, we're just going to talk about got a few different topics that, have, you know, things that have happened in the past couple weeks or past couple days or whatever, depending um, that I think need addressing, uh, from at least we can analyze them from a, a more intellectual angle or, or more, more deeply than we might elsewhere. Um, and those things are, you might have heard the term limited hangout. We're going to talk about what that is. We're going to talk about why you should never argue with David Hogg ever. Uh, we're going to talk about glee as patient zero for the pandemic of woke which has been making its rounds as a hypothesis. And we're going to talk about political system building. 
We may, if we have time, talk about some Thaddeus Russell versus science stuff, but probably not. Uh, I don't think we're going to have time based on the agenda. And if we don't, we'll just postpone it to next time. Okay. Let's jump into this stuff. I haven't done this show in a while, so I'm kind of discombobulated. I'm looking at different monitors and like, oh, well, yeah, I got to pay attention to chat. Hi, everyone again in chat. All right. You may have been hearing this term limited hangout. It's a great term to know. Uh, one of the nice things about being able to conceptualize things or have terms for things is once you once you have that concrete idea, uh, you can start to see things through the lens of that idea, and it, and it helps uh, identify things in reality that are happening to you. And sometimes without the concept, it's a little bit difficult to explain. And this is a great concept you've seen. I think Cernovich has been using it and, and whatever. Um, so we're just going to talk about the origin. I just basically heisted this from Wikipedia. Uh, so this isn't super original, but I, it is important. So I'm going to share it with you. Um, so for this term, if I just tell you the definition, it actually won't click very well. At least it didn't for me. I hate, I hate when people just give me a definition. If it's a term that doesn't really seem to make sense and limited hangout doesn't make sense. Uh, it didn't to me until I heard the origin. So I'm going to give you the origin. Um, in 1973, uh, President Richard Nixon, Tricky Dick, uh, he was in a meeting with um, his political aide and a bunch of lawyers, as presidents are wont to do. Um, and the topic of their meeting was the Watergate burglary, which had recently happened, which apparently they had something to do with. So um, they were discussing the contents of a report that uh, a guy named John Dean, who was part of the conversation. So the conversation was John Dean, John Ehrlichman, John Mitchell, lots of Johns, and, and H.R. Hattleman, the odd man out in the John Club. Anyway, they were they're discussing this report that they were going to have Dean, John Dean, the White House counsel, he was going to create this report for them that would paint a misleading picture of the White House staff's involvement in uh, the Watergate burglary. And it was going to use the phrase, nobody was involved. And the idea was to share this report. There was already a, a Senate committee at this point. It was the U.S. Senate Watergate committee was, was investigating the burglary. They were going to share this report with the Senate committee. And it was designed to provide cover for the president. It was a form of misdirection. And of course, there's a recording of this conversation, like many Nixon conversations. And you can hear the origin of this term. So, so Nixon says, because he's worried because they're going to admit some kind of stuff in this report, but they're going to still mislead, like I said. So he says, you think you think we want to want to go this route now and the you know, let it all hang out, so to speak? And Dean says, well, it's it isn't really that. And Hattleman says it's a limited hangout. And Dean says, it's a limited hangout, because he echoes people. And Ehrlichman says, it's a modified limited hangout, because he needed to clarify which kind of limited hangout it was. And so the president says, well, it's only the questions of the thing hanging out publicly or privately. So now the term limited hangout, according to Wikipedia, I'm just going to read straight from Wikipedia for this part. A limited hangout or, or partial hangout is, according to former special assistant to the deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency, Victor Marchetti. 
spy jargon for a favorite and frequently used gimmick of the clandestine professionals. When their veil of secrecy is shredded and they can no longer rely on a phony cover story to misinform the public, they resort to admitting, sometimes even volunteering, some of the truth, while still managing to withhold the key in damaging facts in the case. The public, however, is usually so intrigued by the new information that it never thinks to pursue the matter further. So you are seeing this term limited hangout being used increasingly in reference to COVID and the COVID response. In particular, you've seen uh, it used Dr. Fauci and others, but I saw Fauci actually do this. You start, they've been starting to backpedal on this idea of counting hospital, hospitalizations um, either with COVID or because of COVID. They've been all in one category and they're kind of backpedaling and, and, and saying, well, we should maybe sort these two out. Um, and people are wondering, many people were wondering, why are they, why are they doing this? They're, they're kind of like admitting something here with this. Uh, and what many people are hypothesizing here is that this is a limited hangout. They're admitting something here because they don't want you to look at the bigger thing. It's a form of uh, misdirection by revealing part of the truth. Now, I don't think this is particularly philosophically interesting. Um, possibly it's psychologically interesting, which we could talk about, I guess. Um, but there is really only one reason I think it's important. And for me, uh, and that is if this is the strategy they're using, if they're using this limited hangout strategy intentionally, um, it signals to us that they know or suspect that their cover is blown, right? It's a strategy you use when your cover is blown. So they sense their loss in credibility. And this is an attempt for them to shore it up. And that's a good data point to know in terms of the culture war and uh, the the road to to the black pill and beyond to the white pill. It's good. It's good to know that this is that they they kind of know that they're losing credibility, and this is their attempt to shore this up. I'll look through chat here for a second. Yeah, Pirate Tomsky says narratives are collapsing. Yeah, that's that's what hap what's happening. Right. And they and they know that um, I did just at the behest of someone else. I just listened to uh, I think it was Keith, the hack guy that said to do this. I just started listening to him about an hour in to the Joe Rogan podcast with Dr. Robert Malone. 1757 is the podcast number. Um, it's quite good if you're interested in COVID stuff. All right. So that's. That's all we're going to talk about with limited hangout. Pretty easy. Just wanted to give you guys an update so you knew what that word, that phrase meant. Now we're going to talk about why you should never, ever, ever argue with David Hogg. Y'all remember David Hogg, right? Survived a school shooting. Uh, thrust, unfortunately, uh, low IQ and all into the public spotlight. Standards waived by Harvard to get him in because he was a Wookiee and uh, now kind of a spokesperson for NPCs. Uh, if NPCs could elect a spokesperson, it would probably be David Hogg. Uh, so I noticed this over the weekend or the, the break and Carrie actually tagged me in this tweet of his and I didn't step up to argue because you never argue with David Hogg. And I'm going to explain why I didn't argue, because I think it's important. So let's see if I can pull this up here. 
All right, you guys should see that. That's my Twitter. Okay. David, David Hogg's Twitter. So he says, <laughs> such a, I'm sorry, for someone who, who takes <laughs> words seriously and thinks they correlate to reality and, and matter, this, <laughs> this is such like, it's like a Jackson Pollock painting worth of concepts. So he writes, the Second Amendment is not an absolute right. None of our rights are. And then he writes in the same tweet, we have a right not to be shot. <laughs> so, uh, and by the way, Twitter gives us a nice little heads up here. Hey, conversations like this can be intense. <laughs> Don't forget the human behind the screen. Yeah. Uh, and as you can see, actually, Carrie, Carrie tagged me, but I did nothing. I, I said I feel bad for him. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't argue with him because you can't argue. You can't argue with David Hogg. Uh, so. Let's talk about why you can't argue with David Hogg. Let me remove him from the screen. We don't need to look at his tweet anymore. It's disturbing. Um, <laughs> yeah, Tom Tom in chat writes, Harvard. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, if you wanted to come up with a strategy <laughs> to convince a bunch of people that, uh, uh, that Harvard's standards had been corrupted and were completely meaningless at this point, you would admit David Hogg. All right. So let's, so first of all, he says, he uses this language. The second amendment is not an absolute right. Okay. Well, what does this, I don't, I, I mean, really, I looked at it for a minute and went, I don't know what that means. I don't just, do you know what it means, David? Uh, absolute. So absolute generally means it doesn't depend on or rely on other concepts for meaning or significance. That's what absolute means. Uh, so an absolute right would be a right that doesn't depend or rely on other concepts for meaning or significance. Um, I'll fight you naked. Just sent me a super chat about something else. I will answer that in a moment because it's a good question. But absolute right. So, so it's a right that what doesn't doesn't re rely on anything or depend on anything. Now, it's important just because someone you dislike, who is wrong about an issue, says something, you, you can't just jump on it and say they're wrong right away. I mean, and then he say because he says none are, and of course, technically, that's kind of true. Of course, our I mean, of course, our rights rely on other concepts, right? like the concept of individual sovereignty. In fact, they're corollaries, or you could argue derivative concepts. So they, they do rely on the concept of individual sovereignty. But what I think he means here, uh, and so, you know, it's, uh, it's dangerous. You got to put your galoshes on to go wade through what you think the mind of David Hogg is doing. But uh, I think what he means here is that rights don't exist a priori to the government. They don't exist apart from the government or prior to the government or separate from the government or in, in they don't stand alone that they're somehow government created. That's the only thing I can think that he could possibly mean here. I'm not sure. Um, so then you would ask, well, what are they? And that he, I, I imagine he believes that they're created from the government. Because uh, I'm not sure what else he would really mean by that. Um now, look, too, you know, too many people take the government as a given, and a lot of people actually, even people who consider themselves advocates for individual rights, 
think they come from the government. They, they act like they come from the government, right? And whether you're an anarchist like me or not, the government comes after ethics, which we'll talk about later. It comes after rights. And the founding fathers knew this and wrote it explicitly in the Declaration of Independence. I think it's the second paragraph, and it reads, we hold these truths to be self This is one of the most famous paragraphs, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So clearly, we can put the origins of rights and, and all that kind of stuff aside for a moment. Clearly, the founding fathers believed that, <laughs> I mean, the truths that they're referring to uh, were the paragraph above, but they talk about certain unalienable rights. Clearly, they believed that these rights, um, all men are created equal, uh, endowed with rights, are truths. Truths. They're truths. They're not derived from the government. They are true as existence qua existence, like man qua man has these rights. That's what they are believing. And because of the rights, therefore you need a government. That's the, or that's the order. And that's the correct order. I and mean, I can quibble with some of the language here, but that's the correct order. The founding fathers knew that's the correct order. First come rights, then come the need to secure them somehow. Now, then David Hogg goes on and says, uh, we have a right to not be shot. He's close, sort of, on this. No one has the right to initiate the use of force against you. Um, but the, obviously, the, obviously, that makes no sense in the context of what he just wrote, right? He like <laughs> He says... Hey, there's no such thing as this absolute right. And then he states what appears to be an absolute by his definition, I guess. I'm not sure. Like I, either the rights, if he's saying the rights come from government, then the right not to be shot is not listed in the Constitution. So we don't have that one. So now he's kind of saying like, oh, rights, they, they come, they must be a priori rights somehow. Um, but he says they don't exist. A priori rights kind of don't exist. But then he lists one, which is the right to not. I mean, God, I wish his IQ was in the triple digits. So, um, yeah, he's close. They, you, you know, do you have a right to not have force initiated against you? And by the way, just to be clear about the rights thing, people in China have a right to bear arms. The government doesn't recognize it, but they have it. That's what that means. Um, I. This thing, I don't know another word for this. I was I, I was trying to like describe this. This is like it it's kind of like goldfish. It's like goldfish reasoning, right? Like goldfish have a memory of like what is it, 15 seconds or so I'm told or whatever. Right. So you see this often when people don't have a clear understanding of the concepts they're using. Clearly, clearly, this man does not. Um, and usually it's more subtle because usually they use a different label or word or they use a stolen concept, right? So like, like they'll they'll change kind of the wording, so it's not as obvious that they're just contradicting themselves blatantly. But but often people say things to you know that amount to that thing I just said ceases to exist the moment I've spoken it. Like that's and it's kind of like it's like goldfish 
communication or goldfish reasoning or language, or it's like, I said it, but oops, it's gone. It's ephemeral. I've got it. Um, this is also how you can tell someone is uh, who's not using words to represent reality, right? Clearly, he's not using words to represent reality because he couldn't use those words in, together in that way to have any correspondence to reality. He's using them as manipulation tools. He probably doesn't even know that that's what he's doing. He's probably never thought of it. It's probably all he knows how to use language. It's all he knows about language is how to use it as a manipulation tool because uh, that's all he's been taught. Um, and this is also kind of an example of why I think it's impossible to argue with someone like David Hogg. It, and, and the reason here is it requires way too much education just to get to the point where you're even speaking the same language or even to the point where he is speaking a language that corresponds to reality. Just to teach him enough to use words in a way that corresponds to reality and are non-contradictory is like a monumental task. And you can't even have a conversation until he gets to that very rudimentary kindergarten level use of language and he's not there. And if he hasn't learned it by now, that's a big task. Uh, so there's no point in arguing with people like people like David Hogg are why ridicule, sarcasm and mockery are effective tools, because there's no possible way to argue with him unless you unless he's willing to sit down with you and like go through some serious coursework to, to adjust his thinking, to understand that language needs to correspond to reality and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, Joseph Oaks writes language as a magic spell. You know, I thought that was a recent concept, but I found it. Oh man, I don't think I can find it this quickly during the show live. This is a dumb idea, but I'm going to do it anyway. I found it in Socrates. Seriously. I found... I found it in Socrates. And, you know, now I'm not, I'm not going to be able to find it quickly. I, I should probably give up. And if Beverly were in the same room with me, she would be throwing spitballs at me right now. I'm going to look anyway. All right, I will find it afterwards, and I'll, I'll post it somewhere. I found it in, that concept is in Socrates, <laughs> oh, which is amazing, right? We're, you know, 2,500 years ago. Beverly wants to know why I should throw spitballs at me. I don't know. You'd spit them. All right. Um, we also do generally do, I didn't really, uh, I wasn't even going to do a definition today, because I know we usually do definitions, but David Hogg, we might as well, we might as well define rights while we're here. Um since, you know, he, he wants to talk about them. Uh, and I would say that rights are, I tried to make this as general as possible, but a right is a universal restriction on the relationship between humans arising from the ethical status of humans as sovereign individuals. So let me say that again. Uh, remember, we do, we do their, um, uh, when we do our concepts, we, we say they're a member of this broader category and they're differentiated by this other way. So the category is uh, rights are a form of universal restrictions on relationships between humans. We actually couldn't use, we could use a different word than humans if we wanted to be verbose and say um, individuals or, or entities with whose faculties are whose primary means of survival is, is their reasoning faculty. But since we're on earth right now and there are no sentient AIs, Humans are the only ones that meet that definition, so let's just leave it at humans. So it's that they belong, rights belong to this category of universal restrictions on relationships between humans. And they're differentiated from other restrictions in that these particular restrictions 
arise from the ethical status of humans as sovereign individuals. That's what that's what rights are. And notice that makes rights kind of a negative. It's a restriction on how humans can relate to one another. That's what they are, right? So when someone says, well, you have a right to private property, it really means you have a right because you don't like that that doesn't exist on a, an island with only you, right? With just just you, there is no right to private property because there's no society. There's no other person. Right. And there's there's no other rational being to respect your right to private property. The right arises in relationship. And what it means is someone can't come along and steal it with force. Right. So it's a it's a negative restriction. It's a negative. It's a restriction on 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 what you can do in a relationship. So that's how I define right. Uh, I didn't bother even to look up like Ayn Rand or anyone else's definition of right. I imagine this is similar enough. You guys can argue with me about what it should be. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop for a moment and do some super chats because I want to get to I want to get to them. Uh, let's see. All right. I'm gonna answer immoral pancakes first, and then I'll do I'll fight you naked because immoral pancakes is I think easier. Um, moral Cam pancake just says gives five bucks. Thank you, moral pancake. And says, once Hogg stated that you are either with us or against us on TV, all of his friends became yes men and his mental growth stopped. He was only 17. Yeah, I mean, this is why I said, I don't remember exactly my response on Twitter, but it, it was like, I actually, sometimes I feel bad for him because he was thrust into this spotlight completely unprepared and turned into a representative of something that he probably didn't even understand. And I'm sure there was a lot of social pressure for him to behave a certain way. And, and uh, you know, it would have been difficult for him to say, well, you know, I thought about it. And actually, the right to bear arms is very important. Um, Keith, <laughs> one more before I do, I'll fight you naked. Keith, the hack guy says, that little shit in Florida is no rel relation of mine. And he's quoting Boss Hog. Uh, who's worse, Boss Hog or David Hog? Probably David. Boss Hog's bad, though. I did love Dukes of Hazard. All right, I'll Fight You Naked asks a question that I'm not sure I can even answer, which is why I saved it. He says, why do you think an old concept like mass formation, uh, sorry, mass formation psychosis, he's using the full thing, but a lot of people are just saying mass formation. Why do you think like an old concept like mass formation psychosis is suddenly everywhere? It's going to be used in some way by the cathedral. <sighs> I mean, I guess it depends on how conspiratorial you are, right? Um, it is an old concept. It's from like the 1900s. Or sorry, the 1800s, 19th century. Late 19th century, I think. Um, I don't know. <laughs> that, that's the brilliant answer. I, I, Part of me wants to believe that... Um, because there is more and more dissent that uh, more and more people with varied knowledge have been looking at what's going on. And we're when we're just uncovering ways to look at this, and this is a way that happens to exist for a while, uh, and it's, it's being used, and there's nothing... Um, there's nothing usurpatious or surreptitious about its use. 
Like it's legitimately being used by people fighting the cathedral to explain some stuff. And, you know, just like, just like you could say critical race theory was used to identify some stuff and, or whatever. Um, I guess we could go with a more paranoid, uh, not to say that it's wrong, a more, a more paranoid uh, hypothesis, which is the cathedral wants us to know about mass formation psychosis in some way. I don't know if we'll be ever, ever be able to tell if that's the case, because even if they start using it, I mean, if they start using it, they'll probably start applying it to like unvaccinated stuff. They'll apply it to COVID stuff. Um, and they'll say that, uh, you know, they, they're because they're they're masters at projecting. Right. So they'll project and they'll say, well, it's it's the it's the the people, the vaccine hesitant are they have mass formation psychosis. Obviously, they're irrational and stupid. Um, and they won't get into details about what it is too much because um, it doesn't fit the vaccine hesitant. Uh, it, it fits the, <laughs> the vaccine compliant. So, um, I mean, they may they may use it in that way, but that's not evidence that they intended to do it. That's just evidence that they you're not going to let the opportunity or go to waste to try and use it or that they're going to um, try and prevent it from being used against them. I can't think of a reason why they would intentionally introduce it. Uh, Think about when when the the big lie was introduced. Um, I mean, not originally, but when it was reintroduced recently, uh, it was originally used to describe um, the idea that everything was fine with the twenty twenty election, and then it was turned on its head. They tried they turned it into um, the big lie being that there was a problem with the twenty twenty election. They tried to do the same thing with. Uh, um, well, actually, the reverse kind of thing happened with fake news. I think they – did they coin the term fake news? I think they might have, and then it just got turned uh, and used against them. So I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I can't think of a good reason why they would intentionally want us to know about mass formation psychosis. Uh, unless, like you said, they're planning to use it in some way. Uh, maybe they'll use it as a way to dismiss – You know, they'll project and use it as a way to further marginalize and dismiss people who um, are in disagreement with the narrative. So they'll use it kind of backwards and they'll, they'll use it against people who actually aren't the hypnotized ones to convince the hypnotized people to further distance themselves. I don't know. It's a good question. Anyone in chat has an idea about why they would do that? I don't know. I, I had not assumed that it was coming from the cathedral. I've heard other people say that though, that like it's a psyop, but I, I'm not sure what the purpose of it will be. I mean, frankly, almost any conversation that doesn't involve secession is a psyop. I mean, we need to get the hell out and separate, but that's a separate issue. Okay, so that's the second that's the second uh, topic I wanted to discuss. We can go over why you should never argue with David Hogg. I think we beat that horse sufficiently. It is flatlined. Let's talk about this most recent. <laughs> hypothesis about the origins of woke culture. And the hypothesis is that Glee, I never saw it, but I assume it's a piece of crap show. So I'm going to say crappy show. Uh, the hypothesis that Glee is patient zero here. And this is um, where I saw that was in a human events article, which I'll uh, 
put out here. Wait, let me share. Uh, there's David Hogg. And okay. Yeah, here's this human events article. And to my knowledge, this is where uh, it came from recently. Uh, and Jack Posobiec referenced it last night, I think, on Tim Pool, which is why it's popularized and making the rounds. And the title here is Hollywood Consultant Admits Glee Started the Wokeness Pandemic, or Epidemic, sorry. All right. It's an intriguing title, right? I've never watched Glee. It's still an exciting title. Now, I think why a lot of people are interested in this, first of all, is that many people were taken by uh, surprise uh, about the allegedly sudden rise of wokeness. Um, and, and of course, you're taken by surprise is correlated to how asleep you were at the wheel. Um, and also, it's also actually, I guess, correlated to how well you understand the meaning and the significance uh, and the evolution and impact of philosophical ideas on culture generally, especially over time. Um, I actually have a, here, I'm going to go look at this on Twitter quickly. I've got a pinned tweet about this related to this. Where I say, stop being shocked that CRT is in blank. Critical theory is 100 years old. Uh, I can't pronounce this guy's name. Dutch Key's long march through institutions is 50 plus years old. Academics have been applying it to race, gender, etc. for decades. The cancer has metastasized. I know you guys love it when I use that word. The cancer has metastasized into culture. Of course, it's in blank. Um, I'm not... I, I don't... If you're shocked, the problem is you. I just want to, like, if you're shocked by it, the problem is you. And that's fine. We can have problems. Just recognize you were asleep at the wheel a little bit. Um, you know, I didn't start Unsafe Space. I, by the way, I looked it up. It was uh, March 2016 when I first did the first thing. And, but it took me a year to move the first thing onto YouTube and then, like, almost another year to do anything else. But, um, you know, I didn't start Unsafe Space because I was shocked. Uh, about what was going on around me. Um, I wrote about some of this stuff sporadically, not not woke culture because it wasn't around, but uh, opposition to these ideas, you know, since the late 90s. Um, I started it because it the level of philosophical error reached a limit that was intolerable to me. And it became clear to me that the other rational warriors against bad ideology weren't going to be enough that they like, they needed help as small as I was. And as maybe I'm not an intellectual powerhouse or whatever, I, I couldn't leave them alone in this battle. Like I, for a while I thought that, uh, well, a lot of the objectivists, you know, from one camp or another or pseudo objectivists will fight this, but they have failed. Um, I thought the libertarians would do some, some, but they failed worse. Uh, I thought maybe, you know, there were libertine conservative writers like PGR work that I absolutely love. I still love, uh, you know, I thought maybe they, they would do it. There's the fiery conservative writers like Ann Coulter, like maybe they'll, you know, beat it. Um, and then there's a bunch of brilliant conservative intellectuals. I mean, there's uh, Walter Williams and, and Thomas Sowell and all these people. 
I kind of thought, well, you know, my job is to be a cryptographer and be in tech and their job is to fight these battles and they can go do that. Uh, I jumped in because, and not through any fault of their own in most cases, uh, they just need, they just need more soldiers. They need more people on the ground, right? Making these arguments uh, and fighting this stuff because they're not winning. So anyway, um, getting back to what we're talking about, it, people are shocked by the sudden rise in this woke ideology and they want a neat little answer because if there's a neat little answer here, that means there's a neat little problem and it can be solved. And this headline here, Hollywood consultant admits Glee started the wokeness epidemic. Uh, this headline suggests that someone involved in the creation of Glee might have intentionally foisted wokeness on us. That's an attractive idea, right? Like, oh, everything was fine until 2009, and then, boom, we were infected by this little virus that came in through Glee. Um, now, uh, that's, I looked at, that's how I interpret the title. The article itself, in fairness, doesn't make it out to be that simple at all. So that's, the author doesn't make it out to be that simple. The title, though, is a little misleading. Um, it wasn't, <laughs> it turns out that this Hollywood consultant wasn't involved in the creation of Glee at all. Now, it doesn't say in the headline that they were, but it kind of feels like it. They weren't. They had nothing to do with the creation of Glee. In fact, they weren't even a Hollywood consultant until after Glee. What they were was a fan on Tumblr, part of the Glee fandom, who later became a Hollywood consultant. That's the person that, quote, admitted this. Not my favorite headline. It's a very long article. Um, so I'm going to cut to the chase on it a little bit for you. The premise here is that the, the Glee creators did kind of a ham-fisted job of casting for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and they brought this intersectional collectivist approach to character development and plot, such as there was a plot, I guess. Uh, and then fans especially on Tumblr and in, in these, these fandoms, uh, identified with these characters in an, a psychologically unhealthy and almost pathological way. Uh, they conflated their own identities with the identities of the characters. And then this led to this massive fan war. Um, and, uh, and then in looking for weapons to fight each other, they went out and found pseudo-academic language like problematic and went out and found the critical race stuff, uh, critical theory stuff. And they then hurled these crude insults like sexist and racist uh, at each other, inspired by critical theory. Um, and uh, then having obliterated the Glee fandom by doing this and, and apparently having a giant fan war, uh, they destroyed that community and then armed with these new tools, they went out, you know, they went forth and multiplied right, and infected the rest of us. That's kind of the, that's kind of the premise of this article. And I'm going to read the summary at the end here. I'll scroll down. All right. We're part of the summary here. These girls, and it is almost certainly most, and it almost certainly was mostly girls, were so incapable of telling the difference between fiction and reality so desperate to pretend that it was them reflected on screen in a glorified teenage music review that they went to the trouble of intellectualizing their discontent through critical theory 
and then took the same mission that animated the wars over Glee on Tumblr into the real world and into real professions in real industries with real consequences. Um, so let me, I, a lot of people are excited about this. I just, let's just talk about, let's just analyze it for a moment as a, as a hypothesis. Um, let me start by saying, I've got no reason to doubt the depiction of any of this from this author interviewed the person, did the research, the author actually watched Glee, never watched Glee myself. Um, so I don't have any reason to doubt the depiction of, of Glee and the, and the characterization of it. Uh, the fandom on Tumblr or the war that ensued or the woke language that was used. I don't doubt any of that. Um, I also don't doubt that this might have been one of the first large communities to distill, regurgitate, and normalize some of the invectives and other language characteristics of, of the woke. Like they might have been the, the, one of the first large communities to kind of take those more academic ideas off the shelf and and make crude representations of them and throw them sling mud at each other with them. Possibly they might've been one of the first ones. And if you're interested in a case study of how a particular piece of pop culture, like Glee can ignite a powder keg of psychological dysfunction and irrational ideology, then you should read it. You'll enjoy the piece. It's an, it's an interesting piece. Um, Pirate Tomsky says Carter needs a whiteboard to draw these connections. I love whiteboards. Pirate Tomsky. If you could see my house, I've got a huge whiteboard that's like four feet across right in front of me. I got another mobile whiteboard right here. And in the other room, I've got like a, it's got to be, I don't know, six or eight feet wide whiteboard. I'm a whiteboard freak, but I don't subject you guys to that. Okay. Um, so yeah, you'll enjoy the piece if you want this kind of case study thing, but I would warn against thinking of Glee as patient zero here. I don't think this is a good hypothesis, uh, or I don't think it's a helpful hypothesis through which to understand or combat any of this. Um, the problem here is not a particular piece of pop culture, right? Pop culture itself is the result of the ideology and psychology of the creators who usually represent some pre-existing culture, even if it's a subculture, right? So art can, can take a subculture and push it into the mainstream, but, uh, the, the creation itself is a product of something like it doesn't, it didn't come out of thin air. Um, so um, even if you believe that Glee was the primary flashpoint, which I'm not convinced of, I mean, there's probably other examples, but I don't know. Um, it would have been something else if it wasn't Glee. So Glee is not the key to understanding anything. It's interesting as a case study. If you want to look at it, it's interesting. But if you care about combating woke ideology, if you care about the crumbling of Western civilization, um, you need to peer deeper into this Glee story and specifically the, the uh, Tumblr fandom war that is the center of this story. Um, and you need to ask two fundamental questions. The first is, um, where did the psychological dysfunction come from to start with in this community, right? Why in this? Why in the world were people in this community identifying themselves with the characters? Like, why are they tying their identities to the characters so personally and so tightly? Why are they susceptible to viewing, uh, you know, superficial traits as essential components of their identities? Why are they prone to a victim mentality, which they were? Why are they focused on finding scapegoats for their own negative emotions, which they were? So, in other words, why is there a group of people acting like they all have 
borderline personality disorder? That's a question because without that particular kind of psychology, glee doesn't work the, or the, the glee wars don't pan out this way. Right. Um, and the answer to those questions is kind of deep and messy and it's not entirely disconnected from ide ideology, which we'll get to in a moment. But the second question you have to ask yourself, apart from why did the, the psychological function or the psychological dysfunction come to exist in the first place? The second question is, why did they turn to critical theory or intersectionality for verbal ammunition here? Like, where did that come from? The author almost implies that they went out and found it to use it as a weapon. That's not true at all. They were swimming in a sea of it already. Um, it is, uh, it's the predominant intellectual environment in which they were all raised, right? It was ubiquitous in universities so that the, the age of people here watching this is, you know, late high school and college. That's the age, right? So it's ubiquitous in universities. Now, maybe it wasn't expressed as crudely in the universities always, but the tools were there. It was all there. Um, and there were elements even in high schools and the mainstream media back then, not that long ago, right? So, um, you know, if you look, demarginalizing the intersection of race and sex, which is uh, Kimberly Crenshaw's uh, paper in which she introduces the concept of intersectionality. I think it's that one. She might do maps of meaning is when it gets introduced two years later. But I think it's the first one that introduces it. Um, it does have the word intersection in the title. I just don't remember specifically. Anyway, that came out in 1989. Now, Glee did not first air until 20 years after that. 20 years. That idea had plenty of time to get into universities and and uh, and leak everywhere, right? Uh, Glee didn't first air uh, until 20 years later, and and two of the three creators were probably university age. In the in the late '90s, which is like ten years after Kimberly Crenshaw's paper, so they most certainly were exposed to this kind of stuff. And by the way, Kimberly Crenshaw's paper is not patient zero either. It's just an example of of a whole body of work uh, along these lines. Um, so so that existed. Um, political correctness that's been around forever. In fact, for uh, the I just before the holidays, I read a political correctness holiday stories book from like the nineties or eighties or something like that's a weak manifestation of both critical theory and elements of postmodernism. That's like, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it assumes that people are primarily members of, of groups. Uh, it, it relies on the idea that words themselves are injurious and that discourse creates reality in some way. Like Political correctness is, 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 I know it's an old concept, but it's a weak form of this. Um, even the civil rights movement, which I know a lot of people don't want to hear, but like, yeah, there was an aspect of the civil rights movement that was judge people based on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And that's a great line. But um, there's also a lot of people treated primarily as members of their race through quotas and that kind of stuff. And, and that's an example of critical theories, collectivist power dynamics, right? This idea that it's that uh, the society consists of a struggle, a power struggle between various groups. That's what leads to quotas and that kind of stuff. That's not that's not enlightenment reason based individualist ideology. 
content of the character, not color of the skin. That is, but not every, not the other stuff. So it was, it was, this has been around that the, the seeds of this has been around for a while. So saying it started with glee doesn't really help us. Cause just, what do you do with that? Right. Um, what you're seeing in Glee is a dramatic example of what has been happening all around us for decades and decades. And it is a great example, and it's, the article's worth reading if you're interested. Um, but what's been happening, and this is hard to flush out, but it's something I've, I've been thinking about a lot, and um, and I think we've talked about it a little bit on the show. There is this generational interplay between psychological predispositions and philosophy. Um, let me, let me explain. So Jonathan Haidt, for example, has this rider elephant metaphor. I think you've heard it several times, but for those of you who haven't, the, the idea is basically, I, I might be bastardizing it a little bit, but for our purposes, it's fine. The idea is basically that our rational reasoning minds are this rider on a giant elephant. And, um, and most of the time we think we're controlling the elephant on telling it where to, and the elephant, sorry, the elephant is kind of our, our emotional uh, and a psychological state and, and maybe some unconscious stuff and, and, and whatever it's, but it's like our, our emotions, basically our emotional world, our non-conscious psychology. And the idea is that we are, we pretend that we're controlling the elephant, but usually what the rider is doing is just justifying, just rationalizing whatever the hell the elephant is doing. Right. And that's that's Jonathan Haidt's metaphor. Um, and again, the rider represents this ability to reason the rational conscious mind here. So if we use that metaphor for a minute, there's I mean, I like it, but I think it's misused and, and causes problems. But it's, it sounds like a good metaphor. He knows what he's talking about, I assume. Um, let's extend this. If we're going to use that metaphor for humans, well, then the elephants, the psychology have genetic predispositions for various degrees of dysfunction or not. That's how humans are. Like it, a lot of psychological, your, your cognitive repertoire is uh, you know, not completely at all, but like man, roughly half, I don't know, correlated with, with your genetics. Like there's genetic predispositions for things. And we know this about, uh, I think they've, I think alcoholism, maybe they've shown that there's genetic predispositions, but it's true for lots of things, lots of, uh, lots of dysfunction. But having a predisposition doesn't mean you'll do it. doesn't mean you'll develop it. Because um, environment still plays a huge role uh, in the extent to which those predispositions are manifest here, um, especially early childhood, obviously. So uh, philosophy, good philosophical ideas. Because remember, philosophy doesn't train the elephant. It trains the rider. <laughs> the elephant's just doing its thing. Philosophy trains the rider. And good philosophical ideas, they help your rider tame your elephant and they discourage the development of dysfunctional behavior. They can't eliminate it obviously, but um, think of it this way. Uh, good philosophy on a metaphysical level, right? Good philosophy is like, Hey man, there's only one reality. It's not contradictory with itself. So, Hey rider wishing doesn't make it. So right. Just cause your elephant wants it doesn't make it. So, okay. Um, Epistemologically, good philosophy says, hey, man, your feelings, they're not arguments, right? Um, so the writer can be like, okay, my feelings only represent the reality of my internal emotional state. They represent what the elephant's doing, but they don't necessarily represent the reality around me. That's an important distinction to know. 
Um, and if you get to ethics, you, you can say, hey, man, you can't force people to do what you want. That's not okay, right? And that's obviously individual sovereignty. All of those things encourage the rider to try and get the elephant under control. I'm not saying it's completely, you can never get it completely under control. Obviously, you can't. I certainly haven't. But there's degrees, <laughs> and and there's, should you be expected to? Does does the culture and society around you expect to dis, expect you to discourage your dysfunctional behavior, or do they expect you to manifest it and and have it blossom and put it in your Twitter profile, right? So, but philosophy that does the opposite, bad philosophy, bad ideas actually encourage any predisposed tendency for psychological dysfunction to bloom and become you know maximally fruitious, right? Like that's. That's what it does. It encourages you to like let your elephant go, right? It frustrates the attempts of the rider to control the element. In fact, the elephant, in fact, even worse, I would say, not just frustrates the rider, it bad philosophy convinces the rider that he doesn't even need to attempt to control the elephant. Just let it go. Everyone's got an elephant, can't do fuck about it, just do your thing. Right? So bad philosophy looks like this to the rider. It's like, hey man, we're all living in our own reality. That crazy thing you imagine about someone else, that's true, because we're all living in our own reality. Right. Hey, man, your truth isn't my truth. Well, there's never a reason to defend my statements. Then I don't have to worry about the elephant. The elephant can do what he wants. I don't have to defend my statements. They're true by virtue of the fact that they're mine because my truth isn't your truth. Right. Hey, man, you can't communicate with people at all. Forcing them is the only way you can interact. Right. Like if you've got this discourse mindset, for example, communication is not possible. Right. If lived experience dictates how you see the world, your entire reality and the definitions of words and communications impossible with out group, you can't communicate. Which means individuals are a means to an end and that's it. So bad philosophy encourages the dysfunction and helps it manifest reciprocally. Psychological dysfunction leads to bad philosophy, right? They they they're in this loop. They redound upon one another, right? The 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 when you have psychological dysfunction that is un uh, that is indulged, let's say, the rider decides he's going to switch his focus from controlling his elephant to justifying his elephant's behavior. He's going to explicitly focus on that. And you end up with the ramblings of people like Immanuel Kant who are desperately worried about how many enlightenment ideas might threaten religion or whatever. Right? He's worried about reason. Right? He, he writes explicitly, I found it necessary to deny knowledge in order to make room for faith. Right? He's not looking out at the world and concluding things. He just really wants faith. So he needs to do some justification. Right? Critical theorists trying to save Marxism by any means necessary. Same kind of thing, right? They feel like Marxism is good. They're psychologically addicted to it. But hey, those class power struggle stuff, that didn't work. So instead of admitting that that's wrong, let's invent some new justifications for why uh, we're still right about Marxism. Oh, it's not class struggles. It's this other thing, right? Deconstruction, I mean, deconstructionism is kind of obvious, right? Uh, it, it uses language to claim that language is arbitrary and meaningless, which is almost definitionally insane. Right. So, you know, and we could take a guess about what the specific psychological dysfunctions of 
that are being manifest here are like there's probably some psychological nihilism. Uh, there's a lot of bitter, cynical outlooks that lead to some of this stuff. But what's going on here is kind of sick, perverted generational dance between psychological dysfunction and pernicious philosophy. Someone rationalizes their philosophical uh, maladaptation or their psychological maladaptation, I mean, uh, by inventing some verbose and, and overly complicated cover story uh, for what's fundamentally just a false and destructive philosophical idea. But that cover story allows them to avoid confronting their psychological anxiety. So fuck humanity. We're going to introduce bad, psych bad philosophy. Uh, and then someone else comes along with a predisposition for the same or maybe just a related psychological maladaptation. And instead of encountering good philosophy that tells them, hey, get your fucking elephant under control. This is the issue you have. They stumble across some smart sounding justifications for just letting their elephant run wild. Right. And so now you get more dysfunction running amok. And if the bad philosophy needs to be extended a little bit more because this new dysfunction is more severe, then so be it. You extend the philosophy. Bad ideas are multiplied in order to, uh, you know, excuse even more and more dysfunction in the in the future. So these two things, this bad philosophy and psychological dysfunction, redound upon one another. And um, the implementation or manifestation of one leads to an increase to the other and vice versa. It's this vicious, vicious cycle. So to combat woke ideology, if you really want to combat woke ideology or the next cultural plague, because it's not always going to be called woke ideology, it won't always be the same thing, um, unless we're in the end game and like they destroy everything as wokies. But you know, let's assume that there's a wokey 2.0 called something else, right? So if you really want to combat that ideology or the next cultural plague here, you're gonna you're gonna need to address this vicious cycle dynamic, which means getting your philosophy buttoned up getting your psychological health in order as best you can and holding others accountable for both. Blaming glee is not going to help you solve this problem. All right. <laughs> Oceana 23 says, speak to your lived experience, Carter. <laughs> My lived experience is that Wilkies need helicopter rides. Uh, I'm going to read uh, two more super chats that came in during my uh, discussion there. I'll fight you naked says those against the cathedral introduced mass formation psychosis. The machine seems to have embraced it opportunistically. Oh, okay. That's what I suspected that the against the cathedral introduced it. Well, think about it from the cathedral's perspective. This gets introduced, this ideology of mass formation psychology or psychosis. Uh, what's the cathedral to do? Right. Anyone can look up and read about it. So it's a tool that's now been handed to the masses. They can't undo that. It's uh, it's out of the bag. The cat's out of the bag. So the only thing they can do is what they did with the big lie, which is, oh, how do we turn around and use it for our purposes? How do we convince people to stop looking too deeply in it? We'll just apply it. We'll say, oh, it applies to the unvaccinated people. They're the people that are hypnotized. And then suddenly all of Facebook's going, yeah, unvaxxed are hypnotized. Right? And that's and they don't have to look at it or explore further. Um, Pyrotomsky says, how dare you say environment and biology has a role? Bigot. I am whatever I say I am. Flies away a pixie. Pyrotomsky, uh, please send photos of you as a pixie. That's all I'm going to have to say about that. So, 
that's the glee that's the glee stuff let me look oh wow we definitely are not going to get to thaddeus russell because i still have another thing to do it's going to be a longer show than i wanted but hey here we are the last thing i want to talk about is um contextless system building which i know sounds like a mouthful uh specifically system building with respect to politics so this is when someone um proposes or maybe just tries to have a discussion about organizing society in some way politically, um, but they haven't done their homework on ethics first. And engineers are really susceptible to this, right? Because we build complex systems for a living. So uh, when the idea of organizing the right society the right way surfaces, we get very excited about it um, because it sounds like an interesting problem. Ooh, I can build the system. Um, you know, and engineers are used to being you know, obviously engineers of the system, architects of the system, organizers, right? That's They're used to being the organizer of a system. So why not fantasize about organizing everything, right? Um, so engineers really like this kind of thing. Um, and of course, most discussions about organizing society here presuppose someone's in charge, right? At the very least, it presupposes that someone should be in charge at the beginning to do the organization, right? If not to maintain the organization. Um, it doesn't usually leave room for society to organize itself. That's usually not how it's introduced. Um, and you can argue that society can or shouldn't organize itself and you need someone to do it. Um, but you can't assume that's true from the start. You can't just jump in with that assumption. That's not how things work. Um, and this, this discussion, which I'll try and keep short, um, as short as I can, this is just inspired by a Twitter conversation that I had over the, I think it was over the break, uh, with a guy who I think watches. He's probably a nice guy, and I don't, you know, hey man, if you're watching, uh, unfortunately he deleted the conversation. I don't. There's, I'm not trying to throw him under the bus or anything here because he's not alone. And it's very common. Um, and the conversation on Twitter got a little bit awkward for me because I didn't know how to tell him that I didn't think he was ready to talk about what he wanted to talk about. Uh, and being the semi Aspergery person that I am, I just said I don't think you're ready to talk. About what you want to talk about uh hopefully he didn't take it the wrong way uh but took it in in the benevolent way it was intended but he did delete the conversation so i don't have the actual conversation so i'm doing most of this from memory but um he had an original tweet asking about whether an optimal society should be structured around individual rights or family units or something like that i don't remember the dichotomy um and he also was thinking that individual rights were in conflict with, with each other or with family units or something. I don't remember exactly, but just the phrase optimal society should be I, like that phrase I actually had because it was in a response tweet that I had. So I know that was a quote um, that phrase just struck me right away. Um, and the first word that struck me is the word optimal. Uh, optimal, most favorable best look up your other look in your thesaurus for any other uh, synonyms here optimal is a value judgment so it's best most favorable those are value judgments um, value judgments imply always imply two things just by their nature one a valuer two a purpose Always. So you, a way to think about this is when you use a value judgment like optimal. Optimal 
for whom? To whom is it optimal? Because there needs to be a valuer here. And for what purpose? Right? That those matter. You can't let you can't just not have those. And we often use value judgment words without defining either the valuer or the purpose. Now, sometimes like one or both of them are implied and it's fine, right? So if I say to you, don't eat that, it's not good for you. The implication is that uh, the purpose is for your health. It's not good for your health, right? Good is a value judgment. You know, those are implied and kind of obvious enough. But often neither the valuer nor the purpose is clear. We have this kind of floating judgment. Remember how we talked about floating abstractions? It's kind of this floating value judgment that's untethered to a valuer or a purpose. Um, sorry, I, I know you can hear the baby crying in the back. Um, we have this kind of floating value judgment. She's upset about floating value judgments. Um, they suck. Uh, and when it's floating, when it doesn't have a purpose and it doesn't have a valuer, it actually has zero meaning. The value judgment is meaningless. It's a meaningless thing to say or use. In fact, it's just confusing. And I just want to... I want to talk about the philosophic hierarchy here. And I don't think this will be long. I, I view a lot of these things. And I don't know if, I don't know if uh, professional philosophers agree with this or not, but I don't care because most of them are garbage. Um, when you talk about the fields of like metaphysics and ethics and politics and uh, epistemology, there is a hierarchy to those things. There's a dependency. Um, <laughs> Pirate Tomsky says I needed a better directional mic. It's a pretty good directional mic. I mean, I guess I could get one of those, like, uh, I, I do actually have like a musician's mic, but I'd have to be up on, I'd have to be up on it like this and talk like this to you all day. Um, anyway, this philosophic hierarchy at the, at the base of this hierarchy or the top, depending on how you want to do it. But the first thing you need is metaphysics, the most fundamental, Right. If you believe that reality is created through magic words, then that affects everything you do, right? Like the, so your metaphysical assumptions underlie everything. Next are your epistemological assumptions, right? Um, how do you know what you know? Um, in rational, in, in rational epistemology, we say, well, it's reason. Reason is the, the art of non-contradictory identification. Um, but look, if you decide, no, no, I can assert uh, I can I can discover truths about the external world through my imagination or my feeling without regard for using reason to verify that it corresponds to reality in a way. Then there's no point in talking about ethics or politics or anything else. Like it's that's necessary first, right? On top of that is ethics. Um, ethics, the conclusions of ethics. Circling back to the beginning, as the founding fathers knew, the conclusions of ethics drive the political discussion at a fundamental level, right? If your ethics are based on individual sovereignty, or the individualist ethics, I say sometimes, that leads you down one particular political path or set of political paths. If your ethics are based on collectivism, if humans are a means to an end for some other purpose, that leads you down a completely different set of political paths. So ethics come first. Now, individualism, as I use the term, is an ethical system based on the concept of individual sovereignty. 
universally applied. That's what it is. It doesn't mean moral relativism. It doesn't mean anything goes. It's not postmodernism. It's an ethical system based on the concept of individual sovereignty universally applied. And I view individuals or ethics generally as having two facets. One facet of ethics pertains to the relationship between individuals, between you and me and you and the postman and you and their mayor and you and your spouse and whatever. Those are, those are how this is the relationship ethics. But there's another part of ethics, which is another facet, which is ethics that pertain to your relationship with yourself. Right. Um, and individual ethics, like individualist ethics, ethics based on, on individual sovereignty, they produce universal rules for that first case for relations between people. That's what those ethics produce universal rules. Right. Um, like the right to private property. Um, and with respect to your own relationship with yourself, those ethics actually, they do produce guidelines, but they're all very contextual, right? Cause they, they depend on your own goals and a lot of other things. And like some of them are kind of universal, like it's better for you to be honest. Right. But like some of them can be contextual. Politics deals with that first set, though. Politics is about the relation between individuals. So if your philosophical starting point is a rational epistemology and individual ethics, when it comes to the question of politics, the question you ask is, how can individual sovereignty be preserved? That's the question that you're trying to answer, right? Politics is a simple question of implementation of ethics. That's what it is, right? And it's, it's a non-trivial question uh, that and it needs to include considerations about human psychology and all this stuff. But that's what it is. It doesn't come before an ethical discussion. So this is why, as an anarchist, I can be besties, right, with minarchists or capitalists or, you know, other, uh, other type of people that view the political aim as the same as what I think the political aim should be, which is to implement the ethics of individualism, like to, to preserve – uh, that individual sovereignty. That's the goal. We disagree on some stuff about getting to the goal. Um, but we agree on, on the ethical level of the purpose. Not everyone agrees with that purpose with politics, by the way. Um, in fact, a lot of people don't. Um, and this is probably why a lot of you in, in the community can disagree about some aspects of politics, but still really appreciate each other because a lot of people in this community, the ethical goal here is clear, right? It's, Hey, individual sovereignty we need to preserve that and the arguments can ensue like then arguments ensue about how to do that but if you're unclear on your basic ethics especially ethics related to social interactions right this this uh actually if you're unclear on epistemology or metaphysics it's also true but specifically if you're unclear on those ethics it's premature of you to concern yourself with politics right um you're not you're just not ready uh you can still have, obviously, you can still have minor ethical edge cases or gray areas you're uncertain of, but you better be pretty solid about how individualist ethics impact social interaction. So you better have that down before you start talking about politics. Um, but if you've got yourself wrapped around the axle with the idea that there are conflicts between individualism and family units or justice or community or whatever, you're not ready to talk politics. Um, because, because properly defined and scoped, as we've done previously 
principles are not in conflict with one another. If you think principles are in conflict with one another, your principles are wrong. Why? Well, we defined we defined principles. Uh, what was our definition? Our definition previously was principles. It's going to sound wordy, but principles are integrations of derivative generalizations into a single generalization of the form. All instances of this type of choice will lead to this type of effect. It's wordy, but basically the point here is that principles are concepts, right? They're integrations of derivative generalizations, right? So generalizations are concepts. You can generalize concepts. Principles are these generalizations of those, derivative generalizations of these. So they're part of your conceptual hierarchy. They're part of your conceptual model of the world. Which means a proper concept, a proper principle, needs to correspond to reality. And there are no contradictions in reality, if you've got your metaphysics squared away. Therefore, contradictions in your conceptual model uh, can't exist. You can't. You, your conceptual model should lack contradictions. There should be none. Right? And that's why you use reason. That's why we call reason non-contradictory identification. Right? You are trying to identify in a non-contradictory way elements of your conceptual model of the world. And if your conceptual model is non-contradictory, then your principles are non-contradictory. So if you identify a contradiction in your principles, your principles are errant. You've got a problem. Weed that out first before you start wanting to get into discussions about politics. The idea that principles are, are in conflict with each other actually has its roots in bad philosophy. Everything from uh, the Hegelian dialectic to pragmatism has, has some element of this, right? And it's fundamentally based on the premise that ideas don't correspond to reality. And that is the siren song of dysfunctional philosophers, that ideas don't correspond to reality. Most dysfunctional philosophers, right? So don't get sucked into that. Ideas do and must, valid ideas must correspond to reality. They cannot contradict one another. It's not about balancing your ideas and balancing your, your principles. That's not how you do it. If you're balancing what you believe is contradictory your principles, your model of the world is wrong. You need to fix it. All right. That's enough. We're not going to talk about the last Thaddeus Russell thing because <laughs> we've gone over. Um, and as you can hear, someone needs some attention. Um, so I'm going to go, go be a dad. Anyway, I'm going to take a moment here to look through chat. I don't see any other questions or comments that need to be addressed. So, uh, there we go. I see a lot of familiar faces. Welcome all of you. Thank you for watching. Thank you for participating in chat. Um, as a reminder, I assume you're subscribed, but if you're not, please help us grow the unsafe based community. It's your community. Uh, help us grow it by sharing the video. Special thanks to those of you who uh, support us uh, financially at unsafespace.com. Uh, you can, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you get access to the Discord channel. Uh, I just asked in Discord today how to start making it better. So we are going to focus on on making that community stronger and better. It's something that is important to me. Um, but uh, if you want to be part of that community, go to unsafespace.com and support us financially. And even, even a dollar a month gets you in. Uh, as always, I love topic suggestions, uh, feedback, um, snarky comments about David Hogg, whatever. Uh, so please don't hesitate to 
give me those. And um, I one last thing, I will apologize. I meant to update the end credits over the break, but I just didn't. So they're still old. If you're a recent subscriber, your name's not there yet, but I will get to it hopefully tomorrow, definitely by Monday. <laughs> so uh, that's where we are. Thank you, everyone. And I don't know if Beverly's still around, but if she is, she can roll the credits. And if she's not, I'll do it. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by Dr. Fauci. All praise be to his name. The following co-conspirators have been asking too many questions. You know what to do. Once the Maxwell trial is over, we promise there will be no more pedophiles among the ruling class. Just one more job to combat the Zeta variant. Oops, I mean the Omicron variant. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.